Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Periodic Talks. Hi, I'm Gillian Jacobs. And I'm Deanna Reasonover. This is Periodic Talks. Each week, we rediscover our passion for science, tech, engineering, math, and this week, even outer space. Yes, it's STEM for those of us who lost our graphing calculators a long time ago. $100 just down the drain. Just gone. (laughs) (laughs) Except for my mother recently mailed me mine because she felt at this stage in my life, I really must need it again. Did we even need it when we had it? Like, did high schoolers even really need a $100 calculator? I know I knew how to use it at one point, but now it just makes me so sad. Do you ever think about the math you used to be able to do? Oh, no. (laughs) I probably should, but it's so far gone. I've forgotten that I used to know it. (laughs) People probably would know me from... TV shows such as Community and Love. So modest. The hit shows Community <laughs> and Love. I like, I love both of those shows. And I think that they're such seminal characters. Oh my goodness. Thank you. Thank you. I feel very embarrassed right now. And uh, where would people know you from? Oh, me? Oh, just from, you know, yeah, a little you. TV show called NCIS Navy Crimes. I'm on your mom's favorite show, as I like to say. It's everyone's mom's favorite show. And I am the girl in the lab, as everyone's mom knows me. (laughs) I probably first got interested in the world of STEAM, science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics, because my mother worked at a natural history museum when I was very, very, very little. And so I became obsessed with dinosaurs, as a lot of kids are, and um, even dressed as Tyrannosaurus Rex for Halloween when I was in kindergarten. <laughs> My grandmother made me a, a T-Rex costume. And oh, um, kindergarten, at- the tiniest little T-Rex just <laughs> running around. Oh, so cute. Um, and so I think just being around the museum sparked my interest. And then as a as a teenager, when I was in high school, I was a teen docent for the Bone Hunters Quarry, and I would tell <laughs> little kids about plants and animals, insects that are still around today that were also around during the time of the dinosaurs. And the only thing I can remember right now is the ginkgo tree. <laughs> that's all I that's all I can remember. The Bone Hunter's Quarry and the Ginkgo Tree absolutely sounds like an Indiana Jones like movie title. That can be our new YA book series that spins off from this podcast. Ooh, that's great. I like that. In a dystopian world, 
One ginkgo tree provides life. (laughs) How about you? My dad was actually a pilot, but he would do our first science project and it was about how airplanes worked, which sounds like it would be really cool and really great to learn. But he always chose to do it like so early. Like that needs to be like an eighth grade and ninth grade science project. He'd always be like, all right, you're in fifth grade. It's time for you to learn how planes work. (laughs) (laughs) Write this chart down. And we never understood what he was talking about ever. But he did like spark some curiosity in me. And so, you know, I did all the cool, I did the cool things that a lot of kids wanted to do. I got to go to space camp. I was in the young astronomers club and then I did not pursue science. Yeah. And then I did not pursue science at all. And so being on the show actually feels like a really nice, like kind of homecoming in a way. It's me getting to live out the path that I did not take. That's amazing. Are there any sciencey things that have been on your mind lately? Have you read any news stories or discovered anything recently that you've been interested in? Yeah, I actually read a really cool uh, piece on CNN about the Sequoia High School robotics team in Canton, Georgia. Uh, They've been doing something that I think is really amazing, which is that they have been 3D printing prosthetics for people. It's kind of amazing. And their teacher, um, Brent Hollers, has really been like guiding them. And I think it just is so cool because you get to see the impact that your science and your technology can have almost immediately. It's so cool. What's the name of their team? Do you know? Oh, gosh, I don't actually know. Should we make one up for them? Yeah. (laughs) They can call them the cool. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. That's how it works, right? Wait, what about you? Have you been reading anything interesting or cool? I was gifted a book this week that I am very excited about, which is called Innumerable Insects. A little over a year ago, I thought I saw a tree that was covered in bird poop, and it turned out it was covered in caterpillars. And then I watched... Wait, wait, stop, stop, stop. What? Wait, where was this tree? I got to hear more. Okay, it's a citrus tree. And um, I thought, I truly thought it was covered in uh, in a lot of bird poop. But then it turned out that the giant swallowtail butterfly when it is in the caterpillar phase at one point the caterpillar it looks like bird poop as a defense mechanism I guess to deter birds or whatever the predators are from eating it and then it transformed one of them transformed into a chrysalis which I watched for many months and then miraculously I happened to walk by as the butterfly was emerging from the chrysalis, and I got to see it fly away after looking at this chrysalis for months and months. So I'd say that really sparked um, a new interest in insects. So now I have this book, Innumerable Insects. (laughs) I can't wait to learn more. What a story. (laughs) Okay, I don't actually, I'll be honest, I did not understand like at least four words that you said. What's a chrysalis? (laughs) Um, So that is when the caterpillar goes into the sort of uh, cocoon stage in which it transforms from caterpillar into butterfly. And um, I texted a lot of people regular updates I don't know if they were actually interested in this or just humoring me, but I really felt like there were a lot of people in my life that wanted to know a day by day update on this. Well, when you say like, oh, hey, you want to hear about this tree covered in bird poop that turns out it's covered in bugs and there's one (laughs) butterfly that's going to come out of this? I think people are going to be like, yeah, I I want to hear about that. 
I'm going to study bird poop way more closely. Hey, should we talk about what's going on this week with this episode? I would episode? love to. Stop talking about bird poop. We have a very cool guest uh, that makes my little space camp heart so happy. We are having an interview with NASA engineer Tracy Drain. Yes, this was so incredibly exciting. Um, I got a chance to, to speak with Tracy. And to me... Growing up, you went to space camp. I mean, sure did. talking to someone who works at NASA or the Jet Propulsion Lab or anyone who's involved in space exploration just felt like the coolest thing of all time. Yeah, I will say that I took space camp very seriously. So it was pretty much the same thing as what Tracy's doing. Your colleagues, I would say. I'm... I don't want to say that I might be her superior, but oh. it's possible. You know what I mean? Like, I was the captain of my spaceship. So. You were? Oh, yeah, I was. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dude, I'm, I'm actually pretty psyched that you got to interview Tracy. I know. It was a real highlight for me. Okay, let's take a listen to my interview with NASA engineer Tracy Drain. I am Tracy Drain, and I am currently the Deputy Project Systems Engineer for the Psyche Mission at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. <laughs> okay. Could you do an exercise for me where you explain your job in layman's terms yeah. and then in the most technical terms oh, possible? <laughs> no one's asked me that last one before. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Oh, how do I make this not be a long answer? Let me see. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so a systems engineer working on a space mission is a person whose responsibility is to work with the people who are experts in all the different areas that have to come together to make a spacecraft work, thermal, power, telecom, right, all those things, and make sure that we are building the spacecraft in the way that they work together and that as we are are testing them and we find issues that involve multiple of those areas. We work with them to find an answer that works for the whole spacecraft. And then as we're operating them and stuff goes wrong, like it always does, <laughs> we work with them to figure out what to do about it. And that's at the spacecraft level. And then you have project systems engineers who do the same thing for making sure the spacecraft and the launch vehicle and the ground data system and the mission design and nav, all of that stuff all works together. So it's a job that changes dramatically over time from when you're deciding how things should be designed to when you're dealing with the testing and then you're dealing with the operation. And it's a job that is pretty broad. And the, the most important piece of it is problem-solving skills, being able to spot a problem and work with a team of experts to figure out what to do about it. Yeah. So that's oh. layman's terms, I think. All right. <laughs> Most technical. Okay. No one's ever asked me to do that. Can I even do that? So a systems engineer's role is to be responsible for the interface between lower-level systems domains so that the requirements that drive the design and the test analyses that we do to verify and validate the design all support achieving your mission goals. Mm -hmm. I knew exactly what she was saying. Saying. No questions <laughs> whatsoever. Lies. Mm, okay. Um, so her simple explanation um, was not very simple. <laughs> do you think you can break it down a little bit more? Okay, this is to the best of my ability. There are many different components and systems that are involved, and they're disparate and separate. And part of her job is to make sure that they're all functioning well together. She's basically like the glue. Like, if you kind of think about it in terms of sitcom, uh, if you think about Friends, I think she's the Monica. Hmm. I have to tell you, I've never seen Friends. Whoa! It's an oversight on my part. 
That's the funniest way I've ever heard someone describe not watching a sitcom. It's an oversight on my part. But but you kind of know what the Monica is from pop culture. Absolutely. I feel like she's organized and very responsible. That's my impression of Monica. Yes, that is the that is a Monica. <laughs> so you're from a place that um, a lot of people mispronounce. Ah. <laughs> Can you give us the proper pronunciation of your hometown? Yes, my hometown is Louisville, Kentucky. You have to say it like you just took a giant bite of a caramel apple. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about like what life was growing up like, what what hobbies you had, what you're interested in? I, when I was a little kid, I was interested in all sorts of things, but I was mainly a giant nerd. You could almost always find me like jammed in a corner somewhere with a book if you hadn't been able to locate me earlier in the day. My mom always says that in the summer, in the dead of summer, she would find me inside with all the windows closed reading a book. <laughs> yes. What kind of books did you like to read? Oh, I like to read. Let me think. Oh, so many books. I liked books that had like a mystery to them. Like I loved the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. Did you ever read? It's about kids who run away from home and wind up living in the Natural History Museum in New York City. Wow. No, not in that. Sorry. That's where my mom worked was the Natural History Museum. (laughs) They moved to the, they're hiding in the Met. Um, Mm. And so maybe because my mom worked at a museum and I got to be there after hours, I was like, that was my dream to live in a museum. That sounds delightful. I would have been your friend just to go hang out after hours in the museum with you. (laughs) Do you remember having a a STEM-based obsession as a kid? Like the first thing that really caught your interest? My interests were so all over the place, but I was fairly interested in space, but like the astronomy side of space. I wasn't one of those kids who had clippings of articles about black holes or anything, but I found it fascinating. We watched a lot of science fiction, right? Star Trek, Star Wars, all of that stuff. And a lot of the books that I read were science fiction based. So it was kind of general, fantastical, sciencey stuff having to do with space. That's so great. Okay, so going back to life as a kid, I know your mom has been a huge influence mm-hmm. on your life. Can you talk about how she impacted you and the field you ended up pursuing and your life yeah. in science? So even from the time I was a little kid, just nurturing curiosity. And whenever I found something that I was interested in, even if it was completely ridiculous, she always took it very seriously. Like, oh, you're interested in this. Let's go find out about that. And she would stay up late to help me with homework assignments because I would forget that something was do the next day. I don't know how many nights she was up until 3 a.m. helping me like finish paper mache, solar system things for a Spanish class or just, you know, all sorts of ridiculous stuff. My trick was to go to bed, set an alarm for like two in the morning, write my paper for like 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. and then make my mother edit it while she was getting ready to go to work. Wow. (laughs) Moms, 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 saving the day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. My mom used to help me with my homework, too. Shout out to moms and parents who are still helping their kids with assignments. OK, so let's pause the conversation, take a short break, and we will be right back. And we're back. Do you remember when the dream of working at NASA started for you? Yeah, you know, it was one of those things that was 
sort of a underlying subtext of my life for a long time because of my steady diet of science fiction books and watching science fiction TV shows. It's like if you wanted to work in an industry that was seriously setting out to go explore space, NASA was the place that you wanted to eventually get to. And so it was just this little thought in the back of my mind that someday maybe that's where I will land. And I remember my mom told me this years later, that when I first told her I wanted to work for NASA, right, she's like struggling to keep a straight face. And it's like, great, honey, (laughs) doing the whole nurturing mom thing. And in the back of her mind, it's so great that she did not tell me this, but in the back of her mind, she was thinking, well, it's probably not going to happen right out of the box. Maybe you have to go work somewhere else first and build a reputation. And eventually, maybe by the time you're 40, you'll land your job at NASA, right? But, um, and I don't know whether I would have taken her seriously if she had said that or, you know, if it would have been a downer on my whole ambition, but she didn't say that. And so I'm like, yeah, NASA, that's where I'm going. (laughs) And I remember when I was in high school working at McDonald's, trying to decide what I was going to do for college. And some of the regulars who would be in the store all the time would ask, you know, so I understand you want to go to college. What are you going to be? And I'm like, I'm going to be an aerospace engineer working for NASA. Yes, that. (laughs) And they were like, Okay. (laughs) And none of them, you know, said, dude, you're crazy. Look around you. You're working at McDonald's right now. Like, give us a serious goal. So it's kind of cool to have a family and a community that was supportive in that way. It's also exactly what you did do was immediately. (laughs) Can you tell that story? You know, how do I? Here's the thing that I struggle with, right? Because when I talk to kids and I'm telling them about my journey and how I landed where I am, and I will tell you that, I swear, I don't want them to walk away with the impression that just because you want it, it's immediately somehow going to happen. And I feel like, yes, I worked really, really hard for many, many years in school, but there were also a number of just really serendipitous events that happened that I was able to take advantage of. And I'm still trying to figure out the best way to tell kids to, if you know what you want, figure out how to get there, but be willing to you have to be accepting of the fact that there's going to be surprises. Some of them will be good and you'll be like, wow, didn't even know I had that opportunity. And some of them will be not so great. Like, wow, that did not work at all. And that it's good to be able to sort of um, zigzag your way through life, maybe towards a goal that you knew you had or maybe towards something completely different. It's weird that my my trajectory to get to NASA was fairly straight lined, right? I went to school. I studied mechanical engineering. I landed an internship at NASA Langley. I decided I needed to go to grad school just to round off the edges, went to Georgia Tech. JPL recruits out of Georgia Tech. I had no idea that that happened, right? So that's one of my really serendipitous things. I almost walked past the booth where JPL was recruiting because at that time I had decided, well, maybe I'm interested in working for Lockheed Martin or or Boeing or Ball or one of the aerospace companies that isn't associated with the government. And the recruiter at the JPL booth literally reached out and like grabbed my arm and is like, don't you want to talk to us? And I'm like, who are you people? <laughs> Because even though I'd worked at Langley, I just was not aware that there were 10 NASA centers across the United States and they all had a different kind of flavor to them. And that, and the, and the recruiter was like, well, you know, that little rover that landed on Mars, right? Pathfinder, that was us. And I'm like, oh, that was you guys. And so I'm like, okay, now you have my attention. Let's talk. And after having a conversation with her and, and then being like, okay, yes, please, 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 please. Here's my resume. Please, please. Here's my number. whatever. And then they invited me out to come and interview. I drooled all over anybody they would let me talk to. And they hired me right out of grad school, which was just insanely fortunate for me. Okay, wait a minute. Can you imagine NASA wanting you to work for them right out of school? Absolutely not. 
But I also really related to what she was saying about, you know, your life and your career unfolding in a way that you might not expect. Um, Some things happening that are really exciting and then other things happening in unexpected ways. How about you? Oh, that's been my entire life, to be totally honest. I did not expect to be where I'm at. Can you talk about what you've learned from like failure? Oh, yeah, I totally can. So how do I say this without giving the wrong impression? (laughs) (laughs) Because so the work that we do in building spacecraft to go explore other planets or asteroids or whatever, it's so unique. There's you're you're pushing the bounds of technology in some ways. You're going to new environments a lot of times. And you know, I'm not going to lie, we're super smart, but, but it's really hard to come up with all the possible scenarios of things that can go wrong. We have a whole discipline related to fault protection. Your spacecraft is going so far away, it takes a long time for your signal to get all the way out there and back. And so the spacecraft has to be smart enough to take care of itself in a lot of cases. So you do everything you can to think up all the nightmare cases, build in the smarts. But there's so many things that happen that you did not expect to happen. It's it's hilarious. Just, you know, it's going to happen. You just don't know exactly what. And I'm often embedded with the teams whose responsibility is to figure out what happened and what we should do about it. And some of those things are very small. And, you know, they happen like once a week. Something really small happens. You're like, that was weird. Let's go think of that out and deal with it. Some of the things are enormous. And it's the like heart pounding, oh my God, (laughs) what are we going to do? This is horrifying. But they make for great stories once you get out on the backside, right? And the one that I've told people about a couple of times, Juno is the mission that I was most recently on before Psyche. And um, it took five years to get all the way out to Jupiter. And the most hysterical question I ever get is, weren't you people bored (laughs) for five years? And I'm like, you have no idea the number of things that happened with that spacecraft on its little journey out to Jupiter. And one of them happened in 2013 when we were doing a flyby of the Earth in order to get a gravity assist, a boost from the Earth's motion in order to increase our velocity so we could get out to Jupiter on time. But we had all the instruments on and we were using them to take measurements of the Earth because it was a great opportunity to test that everything was working out fine. And this was going to be the one time in our whole trajectory that we were going to pass on the backside of a body from the sun. So our spacecraft (laughs) was going to be in eclipse. And it was going to happen for about 19 minutes, right? And then on the day of Earth flyby, 12 minutes into a 19-minute eclipse, the spacecraft decides it has a problem. It powers off all the instruments. <laughs> We're like, you have got to be kidding. There are the most adorable pictures from that day where people are like staring at the screen with their jaws hanging open. <laughs> like, I can't believe this is happening right now. And it turned out to be a subtlety between how we were analyzing the power curves on the ground and how the spacecraft was doing measurements that just was out of sync. And the spacecraft hit a limit that we had told it was going to be problematic. And it like did all sorts of stuff. Then the Earth flyby was fine because it was just physics, right? The spacecraft didn't have to do anything to get the assist, but spacecraft was in this thing called safe mode where it turns off all the instruments, it points its antenna at Earth, it says something's wrong with me and waits for us to do something about it. And so we realized what had happened, you know, a very, very short period of time, like, you know, probably less than an hour banging our heads into the table. And we're like, all right, fine. So We're now doing all the steps you have to do to get everything reconfigured and the instruments back up. It takes a couple of days to do that. We got the space draft all the way up. We're like, all right, fine. And then something else happened that had kind of been triggered by the first one that turned all the instruments off, dropped right back into safe mode. 
And this this happened at like nine o'clock at night and everyone gets on the phone. We're having our anomaly conversations. We're like, just wow. And so we understand that fairly quickly. We know the spacecraft not in any danger. So we're like, okay, everybody, just go home and get some sleep. Tomorrow morning at nine, we'll posse up again and figure out what we're going to do about it. And then something else happened. And the spacecraft like re-enters safe mode from safe mode. And we're like, really? And that whole experience, while it was somewhat painful, was just so educational for us. And we ended up spending a lot of time, because we don't just say, what happened and what can we do to fix it? Now let's move on. It's what happened? What can we do to fix it? Okay, why did that happen? Is there anything else remotely like that, that that same thing can happen? And there's just tendrils everywhere that cause you to really go to town, squeezing out the inefficiencies in your process. And so we had three lovely different things to go and do that with, which really tightened up the team and the operations for getting ready to go, you know, do our arrival at Jupiter. And so a lot of times we think of it as a a pretty bright silver lining. Like that was such a good experience for us to go through. <laughs> but still, it was a little tiring. Can you think of an example where you've learned from failure? Uh, yeah. Um, let's see. I've had several auditions that I did not get, and those are all failures on my part. <laughs> what about you? Uh, you know, when I was 16... I was in this play in my hometown um, and I got a very bad review from the local paper and um, (laughs) it was pretty embarrassing. But then my acting teacher gave me this book that is a collection of terrible reviews that very famous actors have received over the decades, which was very comforting. But then she also said to me, now be honest, would you have cast you in this part? And I said, No. And so it was a really great lesson on perspective of like, I think at the end of the day, I was miscast and this might have been beyond my abilities. But I'm also joining many, many other actors who have received very bad reviews and kept going. Do you remember a biggest moment of awe or wonder you've had? Oh, there were a lot, actually. (laughs) You don't have to say biggest, just one that just comes to mind. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting, even though I spend my life working on the engineering side, the reason I and a lot of the people who work at places like JPL do our job is to enable the science. And so some of the things that I like the best is when I get to go to the science team meetings and hear the scientists talk about their discoveries. There was this moment at a Juno science team meeting, all the different science teams were telling the stuff that they were um, discovering. This particular instrument that takes infrared images of the planet put up an infrared image of, I can't remember if it was the North or South Pole of the planet, And it's just, it was so, I'm going to explain in a minute why this is so amazing. But like all the other scientists stood up and burst into applause. It was like, oh my God. Because, so when you're looking at Jupiter and you see the bands of clouds, like the tan and the the kind of rust orange color, that's what we're used to thinking of Jupiter. It's this this bandy planet, gassy planet. It's got these super high speed winds, blah, blah, blah. Really cool place. And We had never flown a spacecraft over the poles before so that you could get detailed images and measurements of what was going on there. So we just didn't know what it was going to be like. And we had some tantalizing images from our visible imager camera to show that it has like these 
storms at the top that aren't organized into bands like they were on the side. So we, we kind of had the sense that something really freaky and awesome was going on up there. But you can only see half of the hemisphere at one time because of where the sun was and the lighting conditions. It was like bright on this side, dark on that side. And you kind of had to piece together the images to sort of see what was going on. But when you're measuring the planet in infrared, you're just looking at a heat map. And so the lighting conditions don't matter at all. And everything is thrown out into this like super sharp relief. And they showed a picture, it must have been of the North Pole, because it had a central storm, pretty big, and eight almost equally spaced storms around it that was just like hallucinogenic. It was so crazy looking. And since you could see it in such sharp relief, it was really a visceral understanding that something wacky was going on and the scientists were just losing their minds. It was so great. And to be a fly on the wall in there watching the scientists, you could see the gears turning going, how are we going to explain what is going on in the atmosphere in order to make this crazy thing happen? Super cool. Just so great. It's an sadly an era in which I feel like we're having to dis- defend the importance of outer space yeah. exploration. And I mean, I think we all in this room agree that it's important. But why do you feel like it's important? I think there are I tend to resonate with two main threads of the importance of space exploration. One of them is just because I think curiosity and learning things about our world and our place in it are just intrinsically valuable. And there's that aspect of it. And there's a whole there's a whole subthread that goes along with that, with space exploration as a way to inspire the next generation to continue learning and doing things, even if the things they end up doing have nothing to do with space. For the second thread, I think it's about when you're trying to learn, like, like let's take the earth, for example. I think most people would agree. It's very important for us to learn about the earth so that we will be good stewards of it. But when you have a sample size of one, it's much harder to figure out underlying causes of the things that we see going on. Like let's take if you have a basketball and you tell someone, you get someone to tell you what are all the the properties of a thing called ball. They will say things that are really very specific to a basketball. But if you give them a basketball and a baseball and a golf ball and a tennis ball and you say, now tell me what is a thing called ball, they will have a much more nuanced understanding of that thing. And so it is for us, if we look at the Earth and Venus with this runaway greenhouse thing and Mercury, which is getting blasted super hot close to the sun and Mars, which was probably warmer and wetter in the past and then lost all its atmosphere. When you look at all of those things, we can do a much better job then of understanding our Earth's system and the changes that are happening and how we take care of it. Do you remember your best view of the night sky, like the time you could see the most stars? Yes, I do. And it's because I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. And even though it's not like a super huge city like Los Angeles, it was plenty big enough so that we had plenty of light pollution and you just couldn't see the stars that well. You could see some. And when I was standing on the bus stop at whatever ungodly time in the morning, I remember in the winter always being able to see Orion and just like staring at those super bright stars and thinking about them. But then when in the summer between my junior and senior year, I got to participate in this um, program called the Governor Scholar Program, where they would take some kids and they would send them to one of two colleges for, I think it was three weeks. It must have been longer than that, some period of time. And 
you got to choose a quote major unquote, and then they would assign you an an uh, minor. And I chose astronomy, obviously, <laughs> and I got uh, cultural anthropology for my minor, which was also really fun. But for the astronomy kids. They drove us out way far away from the college, and and the college was already located in a much more rural area. And we, you know, we got out there. They turn off all the lights, they give everyone little red flashlights to let your eyes adjust. And once our eyes adjusted, oh no, wait, no, no, I, you know, I, yeah, it's, it's getting me too. It's just- no shame. Wait, pause. This is Diana. Is Tracy crying? Yes. And it was so moving to see what an emotional experience that was for her. Even now, that sense of wonder and the emotion she felt looking at the night sky. Once our eyes adjusted and you looked up and you could just see the Milky Way across the sky, I was like, you can see that? Like what? I just, I had assumed that you only get to see that out of like telescopes or or big observatories or something. It just, it was, I had no idea that the human eye could see the Milky Way. It was just crazy. Like, oh. I also went to a governor's school in Pennsylvania mm. and they've sadly defunded it when I'm, Ugh. I really want them to bring it back, but it was one of the most important experiences of my growing up was, uh, yeah, getting to go to that. I saw your face go, yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, it also feels like what you're talking about is opening yourself up to wonder. Yeah. To allow yourself to not be so cynical that you can be moved by looking at a night sky. Absolutely. And how do you like strip away your cynicism as an adult or all the, th- you know, even as a child, like how do you let yourself experience wonder? And is it partly you get socialized into thinking that's not cool mm. and it's not cool to be excited by things mm-hmm. and you kind of have to hide it and maybe you tell your parents or your best friend or so, you know, but it's like, I I think back on like, what did I lose for all the things that I did have passion about and I pursued? What did I lose along the way? Yes. Uh, and, and I think that's also partly what this is about for me, adding areas of wonder back into your life. Absolutely. I think everything you said about the reasons people lose their sense of wonder is true. I think it's also that people just get overwhelmed by so much going on in the world and they get a little bit exhausted and they're almost trying to trying to conserve their energy by focusing on a small number of areas and sort of shutting down, paying attention to all this other stuff. And I think that the easiest way people can dial back into that is to just open your eyes. There are trees that are exploding with flowers and just taking a half a second to appreciate them. And not just because they're beautiful, but because you're thinking about, wow, there's been lots of rain and now there's all these flowers and there's going to be an uptick in butterflies and you can just get a sense of how things are connected, you know? Is there anything you want to plug? Yes. I would love people to know about Juno Citizen Science because the the camera that we have on board is not a camera that is only reserved for the science team, but it really is there for public engagement. And Juno is unusual in that whenever picture, new pictures from the planet are available, like once every 53 days when they go by close to the planet, they just dump the raw images online and anybody can go download them and use any tool you want to in order to massage them and pull out pieces and make contrast and make artwork with them and then upload them back on the website for everyone to see. So if you just go online and search for 
Mission Juno, Juno Cam Gallery. I think that's probably the easiest way to get dumped into where that is. Then all sorts of people can see. And, and you'll you'll see there are like hundreds, if not thousands of people who have been participating in this over time. That's so cool. It's pretty great. <laughs> Thank you so much. I so appreciate you being so generous through time. Absolutely. And this has been so much fun. It's been my pleasure. I've had a great time too. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, let's take one last break. And when we come back, we've got a story about the Harvard computers. And we're back. Okay, it is story time. We have a story about a group of women called the Harvard computers. Now, these women helped build our understanding of the universe. Let me set the scene first. So America, 1870s, we're just post-Civil War. Not far enough from my taste, but still. This is now starting to become the America we know today. For example, earmuffs, just patented. Yellowstone National Park, newly established. Washington Post, just started publishing. Hmm, okay, so this is the America that Wilhelmina Fleming discovers when she steps off the boat in Boston in 1878. So she is 21 years old, and she has just emigrated from Scotland with her new husband. She's looking for the opportunities a new home and country can provide. So she was one of nine, you know, born to tradespeople in Scotland, and... This beginning hadn't stopped her from an education, but she'd really hit the ceiling of what she could achieve back home in Scotland. But pretty quickly, dreams kind of turned into heartache because when she got pregnant, baby daddy, gone. Okay, she's alone in a foreign country. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so now she has a child to provide for. She's all alone. She started working as a housemaid for a man named Edward Pickering. Tell me about him. Okay, so Pickering was this really strong and well-educated Bostonian. He'd been put in charge of the Harvard Observatory. And this was huge because the world was at a turning point in terms of astronomical research. Yeah, because this new technology of photography, it allowed for telescopic images to be imprinted on small glass plates for study. All of a sudden, they could study things close up. And hundreds of these plates are being sent in from all around the world to Harvard so that they could analyze them and catalog them. And Pickering, he's in charge. Hmm. Yeah, and so Pickering's getting frustrated because the men he has working for him weren't working hard enough or fast. Fast enough. So who did he hire? His Scottish maid, <laughs> Wilhelmina. And as Wilhelmina excelled at her job, Pickering brought on more women to work under her management. So he created this whole staff of women that were referred to as the Harvard Computers, um, a team of women researchers who cataloged and studied the universe. So this is something that I found really fascinating. Before there was a machine called a computer, computer was a job description for a person. It was a person who did computations. Oh. So these women, isn't that funny? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen pictures where it says like computer department and it's a bunch of women sitting in a, in a room. So the women, the female computers of Harvard Observatory were doing um, computations. They were working on algorithms and cataloging these images of the stars. Wow, that's amazing. I never thought about a computer computes. Yeah. Yeah, that make, that totally, that computes with me. <laughs> so our Harvard computers, they sat in this like little teeny tiny room and they like shared desk. Then they had these little photographic plates through magnifying glasses. It was not, uh, it was not bold. You know what I mean? It was dark. The technology was meager and sort of new. But in this room, they still managed to make some of the most remarkable discoveries in modern science. Yeah. So one of the other women that worked there was named Annie Jump Cannon. And she was this incredibly commanding woman. And she classified more stars than anyone in history. I can't even get splinters out of my fingers. I can't even pluck my own eyebrows. I don't dare. 
I know I would do it wrong. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would have stars all over the place. I would be wrong. I'd be like, that's a star. People would be like, that's Indiana. Or that's dust. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't know what the heck I was doing. But she was sitting there staring at these plates year after year. And not only did she classify these stars, she created a whole new spectral cataloging system that we use today, Ugh. which is pretty remarkable given the era in which these women started working. Hundred. You know, and how much technology has advanced that we're still using this cataloging system that she came up with that really speaks to how smart and far-reaching her insight was. So her system organized stars by temperature. And um, she was so remarkable that she also had the forethought to endow an award in her name, which is still awarded to women making great discoveries in astronomy today. It's called the Annie Jump Cannon Award. There's also Henrietta Leavitt. She worked as a computer and she specifically studied this uh, one particular kind of star called Cepheid stars. And those are stars whose light pulsates regularly as opposed to erratically. So through her study, she established Leavitt's Law. And that's a rule uh, that allows the measurement of stars distance from Earth. Now, this is really groundbreaking because it literally laid the groundwork for Hubble's discovery of the expanding universe. So there's a woman named Cecilia Payne Kaposchkin who studied the composition of stars, and she asserted that any star, including our sun, was primarily composed of hydrogen and helium. So she made this discovery. She, you know, wrote it down at the time and published it. But it was basically dismissed by the men around her. But a few years later, after some further independent study was done, she was proven right. This brings us back, however, we're bringing it all the way back around to Wilhelmina Fleming. How does an immigrant, single mother, former maid whose discoveries... I'm trying. I'm really trying to get this Hamilton going. You did very well. Thank you. I felt like I was there. Yeah, you were. You were. I'm Lynn. How are you, Lynn? I'm great. Great to see you. I was good in Moana. <laughs> um, she actually discovered something that a lot of us know about. It's called the Horseheads Nebula in the Orion constellation. She actually became the first female American citizen to be elected onto the Royal Astronomical Society. That's huge. It is. That's huge. Good job, Wilhelmina. So all those these women, we have to say, they were getting recognition in their day. It's not like their accomplishments were going totally unnoticed. In the international field of astronomy, people were recognizing that these women were making important contributions, but they still were having to fight for their rights. You know, they were never paid equally to men. And some of them actually worked free just to have the opportunity to work in the sciences. We should also note Pickering was a pretty good ally. He actually pushed the president of Harvard. Uh, he wanted Annie Jump Cannon's work to be recognized in pay, which was fair and in title. In fact, he said, Miss Cannon is the leading authority on the classification of stellar spectra and perhaps on variable stars. In a surprise to absolutely no one, this was denied. Mm -hmm. uh, and people actually used to call the Harvard computers. Now, this is really gross. They called them Pickering's Harem, which, dude, they already had a name. It was the Harvard computers. Don't be jerks. <laughs> Some people perceive them not to be innovators, but basically just to be like scrub workers. Unless you're seen as this sole genius making a discovery by yourself, it's really easy to diminish and undermine the hard work that these women were doing day in and day out, year after year, mm -hmm. and really the importance of their contributions. You know, and if you want to learn more about this story, you can check out the book The Glass Universe by Deva Sobel, which is really beautifully written and, and tells a more complete story of the ladies of the Harvard Observatory. And 
that's it. That's our episode. This was such a great episode. Yay! <laughs> okay, I got to ask you, is there anything from this episode that has really stuck with you? Uh, Tracy crying when talking about looking at the night sky. I actually was going to say the same thing. I love it when people are like pursuing their passions. I'm like, you're doing it. Yay. It, it reminds me that that I, I aspire to be filled with wonder when I look out the window and look at the world around me. That's a really good thing to aspire to. I aspire to go to the Mount Wilson Observatory in the greater Los Angeles area. Maybe someday at some point in an unfixed future, we can go to the Mount Wilson Observatory. Uh Uh-huh. I love that. We'll take a picnic. Yes! Okay, should we do credits? Let's. This show is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon and Kimmy Gregory. Our engineers are Jordan Duffy and Brendan Burns. Our theme music is also by Brendan Burns. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson, and we get research assistance from Catherine Seifer. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine Martirana. Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher. Stitcher.